My name is Philippe Auclair. I've been a Londoner for 30 years, going on 31 now. I'm a writer, a broadcaster and a musician. As a writer, I mostly concentrate on sports, politics and music. Sport is my main area of activity at the moment as a writer, both of articles and, and also of books. We're at the Star of Kings, north of King's Cross, which is a place where I, I sometimes go after I record the Guardian Football Weekly with my friends Max Rushton and Barry Glendening. I've been a, a regular on the show for a number of years now. I've actually just finished one of those podcasts talking about the Champions League and just having a short breather before I'm off to the British Library, one of my other haunts, to work on um, a book that I'm supposed to have finished a few weeks ago and uh, which I've got to deliver a final chapter to my French publisher. So a busy day, but very nice, very pleasant to have the opportunity to sit down and to reflect and to talk about some of the things that have led me to these islands. And by the way, don't be put off if you hear the little knock-knock uh, from time to time as we're upstairs at the Star of Kings and I think they're busy in the kitchen. Many people have been surprised that somebody like me would answer the call from Tom Holland and Kevin Haig, Ali Ansari, Sam Taylor. We don't necessarily see eye to eye on political questions, but we have got one thing in common, which is, of course, about the United Kingdom and these islands and the future of this country post-Brexit or post-referendum, as I like to put it, because I don't know what's going to happen with Brexit, not more than anybody else. And also to try and explore what is going to be the status. When I say status, I mean this in the broadest possible sense, not just the political, legal status, but also the emotional status of people who, like me, have come from the continent, uh, in my case, a very long time ago, 30 years, and who, until 23rd of June 2016, very much considered themselves to be integral parts of British society and have since then questioned our involvement, which is another reason why Tom Holland and the others and myself thought, well, let's start the conversation, as I keep saying, there's far too much shouting going on at the moment. So let's have a conversation, especially with people who are going to challenge my views and whose views I'm going to be able to challenge which is one thing which is missing very much at the moment. I was born and I grew up in Normandy. My family are stereotypical Normans because my father is a farmer. My grandfather was from a farming family as well and was a forester. And also uh, we had a cider factory. But I moved to Paris quite early on for my studies because I was reading philosophy and I prepared the entrance exam to the École Normale Supérieure, which I did in Paris, the Lycée Henri IV, like my president, Emmanuel Macron. The difference is that I passed the exam and he didn't. I studied philosophy at Normal Sud at a very interesting time in French philosophy because our tutors, and I know it sounds a bit like name dropping, were people like Derrida. I used to be a regular at Michel Foucault's lectures at the Collège de France. I used to gatecrash Jacques Lacan's lectures as well, Gilles Deleuze at Vincennes, Félix Gattari and all these people, Julia Kristeva. So I was part of that little scene and uh, normally I should have become a lecturer. But I had doubts about my ability to work as a lecturer after some bad experiences when I did teach, not for very long at all, at Nanterre. 
And also at the time I was starting to get seriously into music making and I had an offer to do a record in Brussels. I find myself saying goodbye to a teaching career and go to Brussels where I recorded a few things, surviving by working as a cook in a brasserie on the, on the Grand Place, not really knowing what's going, what was going to happen to me. And then after spending about a year and a half, two years perhaps in Brussels, moving to London where I had another record, a recording deal with a company called Cherry Red Records, meeting my wife almost the day I arrived in London and then settling in here. I became a translator at the BBC World Service for the same reason as I was cooking in Brussels because I needed to earn a living. Then I got promoted to presenting. Things just followed what to me seems like a very natural course. And that's how I found myself a Londoner and a writer. Football was always there. I discovered recently that my father actually played in the University Cup final in 1948, which he had never told me about. He was obviously pretty good, much better than I was. And I used to play. I played left back for Normal Superior. We had a football team, yes. I was also, like many people from my part of France, I was looking more over the channel for music as for football, because I'm from Normandy, but I'm from the north of Normandy, so quite close to Le Havre. And yet, for example, the two best record shops in the late 70s, early 80s were in Normandy, were in Le Havre and Rouen. And people were converging there to buy very rare records coming from America or coming from the punk scene in, in, in England. Also, we could take the ferry to go to Portsmouth, which was very lively at the time as a music scene. Or we could take the ferry boat to New Haven and then on to London, and then go to gigs there. So it was very natural. And similarly, we were looking to English clubs. For example, I was fascinated by English football. Our heroes in the playground were Bobby Charlton and George Best. I should say my elder brother's heroes, but we inherited that. And then I fell in love with the Arsenal and became an Arsenal fan a long time before I actually moved to England. And so it made complete sense. I mean, music and football are completely inseparable in my experience anyway. And I think most football fans would agree with me if the two are completely linked and wonderful way into English and British culture, by the way. I think perhaps the two best on popular culture, that is, or was at the time. One of the things which has bothered me the most since the announcement of the Brexit referendum was the polarization of political discourse. And if I dare say so, it's a personal point of view, but the complete and utter illiteracy of both campaigns which I find extremely frustrating. Another thing I found absolutely incredibly frustrating is that the dimensions that were explored or that were talked about were unbelievably insular when we were talking about something which was the most important decision in a generation, if not more, in two generations perhaps, since the end of the Second World War. So many things were not talked about, and one of the things that was not talked about at all was the fact that there were over three million European citizens living in Britain, and not people who had come just for a quick gig or a six-month contract, but who actually had made their home here, and very often had married or had British partners, British children, or binational children. The same went as well for British nationals who had decided to uh, build a life abroad and making use of their rights as European citizens since the year, because we're all European citizens since the Maastricht Treaty and since 1993. And I was thinking we're completely absent from this. Nobody's talking about us. It made me think about our status here, our relationship with Britain, our relationship to Europe, the very peculiar place and space we seem to occupy and that nobody seemed to be bothered about. So which is why very early on with two friends, a Greek writer called Apostolos Dothiadis, who is quite famous in um, graphic novels, 
very famous actually and very successful. And an Austrian friend who is also a writer and musician, Robert Rutifer, who's lived in Canterbury for 20 years, I think now. We thought we've got to put across the, the fact that this referendum is not just about 300 million pounds more for the NHS or about Project Fear or about this and this and that. There is also a human, cultural, historical dimension which nobody is talking about. I think the only time when we thought, oh, at last, was when Gordon Brown did this very short film, but just a few weeks before the actual vote. And we thought this is missing, one voice missing, which is that of us, the three million nationals, and Europeans in general, actually not just the people who live in Britain. We don't want to tell you which way to vote. What we want you to do is to vote knowing that we, Europeans, do value your presence within Europe. It was basically a love letter to Britain. We phrased it in such a way that I believe that it was quite clear we wanted the UK state to, to stay within the European Union, but you should know this. We should remind you of this because nobody is reminding you of that. And we didn't go for the usual thing, which is to go to all the celebrities and the lovies and so forth. We actually went uh, completely across the board. So we had, yes, we had some actors and very famous actors and, and so forth. But we also had a record number of Nobel Prizes from chemistry to physics to literature. We had loads of scientists, researchers. We had people from the world of football, for example, who were known to the British football and public, from Arsene Wenger and Gérard Rouillet, managers here, to Stylian Petrov, who is an absolute legend at Celtic, who is Bulgarian, to chess players, to you name it. So we thought we have to have as broad a spectrum as possible to show you it's not about lovies, it's not about the Golden Globe Awards kind of speeches. No, this is something from the heart. We mean it. We really mean it. It actually took off far more than we ever hoped it would, and we ended up with, I think, an absolutely extraordinary list of signatories. Something which was published in the TLS to start with, and was also reproduced in many, many other places. And we thought, well, we've done our bit at least. I'm not sure it had a great incidence on the vote. Quite clearly it didn't, but I hope it certainly awakened that particular dimension, at least with some people. You cannot change the whole world, but you might change the mind of five or ten people. That is already something quite important. Anyway, how does this lead me to these islands? Is that the bipolarization that I was talking about has only become more marked since the referendum. I, and I think most people around me, don't recognize we have a place anymore. People are talking at me, but not talking to me. They're not listening. I felt, well, we have to get the conversation going again. Let's have proper conversations. Let's not shout at each other. You want your views to be challenged by people who are willing to challenge them fairly, not hurl insults at you. For example, one thing I've missed is the possibility of having a proper discourse with people who supported the Leave campaign, who voted Leave. I thought, where is the space for me to do that? And I'm sure there are many people who voted Leave who think, well, where can I have a discussion with people who voted Remain? And I'm not going to be seen as some kind of xenophobe and knuckle-dragger and the rest of it. That's one of the things that I found very appealing in these islands because it's obviously a very broad church, if I may use that word. There are people who were and are in favor of remaining, people in favor of leaving. There were people who are, whose opinions has shifted, who might be not 100% sure about one thing or the other, but I've all spent a great deal of time thinking about it, reading about it, talking about it, being challenged. Maybe that's where I come from, being philosophy student and teacher. You want to be challenged all the time, but by people who respect you and can do it in a rational fashion. 
I was very impressed with the people who had started these islands, who were part of the steering group. And I also was very impressed by their determination to make the committee as far-reaching as possible in all sorts of directions, be it political or ethnic backgrounds. Of course, you're going to have a number of academics, but because you want people who are experts, I don't have any problem with experts myself. Actually, the more, the merrier and the better. And then when Tom Holland came to me, whom I knew for completely different reasons, such as our shared love of cricket, for example, I said, actually, would you mind joining us? I thought, it took me about a tenth of a second to say, well, yeah, <laughs> you bet. Of course I would, but what can I do? And I said, well, we don't have anybody who can make us think about this other component of British society. This other component being, of course, the EU nationals who had settled in Britain, not people who, again, I stress that, who might have come for a short-term contract or had come to study, then we go back. No, people who had settled here. My wife is British. My daughter has got now both passports. She insisted on getting a French passport, which she didn't have after the referendum, which I think is very telling, because she was distraught. She was absolutely distraught, and so were we, but I think her more, more than anybody else. So we've got to do something about it. We've got to carry on. And for me, being part of these islands is a way to carry on, not to be there waving my European banner, but to have people talking about what is genuinely happening. What we have in common, when I say we, is everybody within these islands. We are people who all have a deeply held conviction and well-informed conviction that the United Kingdom is far better as a whole, that the response to fragmentation is not more fragmentation, that erasing a common past is the worst possible way to prepare for the future. And therefore, we all have this very strongly held unionist view. But of course, when we say unionist, people think about rangers and DUP. It's not that kind of unionism. I think people should be aware of that. So in a way, it felt like my natural intellectual family. It's so important to have places like this because I look around and there are very few places where the right debate is being held. It's a bit like being in a football game. It's like everybody's running after the ball. It's chaos. It only takes one person to put the foot on the ball, have a look around, say, well, this is where I should pass the ball, this is where you should move. Then it starts to make sense. Right, putting your foot on the ball. And it's a great place to do that because there is also the intellectual rigor, as in peer reviewing. I've done that. My role within the group, or I should say within these islands, is not just to be there as a kind of um, token European or token Remainer. It's great to be involved again in a group, these islands, where people have deeply held convictions but are willing to challenge them and are also people who have a fundamentally positive point of view. I wouldn't say they're born optimists. I would say probably they're realists who are willing to give optimism a chance. Again, there aren't that many people like that and places like that around at the moment. It's also, on a more personal basis, a means to ask myself what it means to be a European in Britain, what my own future is going to be, because I'm not going to lie, I've thought about, should we go? Should we leave? Is there still a place for me in this country? When I've been insulted in the street, when I've had filthy insults thrown at me on social networks, which had never happened to me in 30 years, you start to ask yourself questions. So um, the answer is to have a conversation with the right people.
it helps a lot. And that's what I found with um, these islands. This European part of the British identity is something I believe that perhaps I'm more sensitive to as a Frenchman of my own background. When I say my own background, the history of my family is absolutely insane in terms of what they did and uh, what they went through. But perhaps one of the constituent parts of it is the fact my grandfather, whom uh, passed away at the age of 103, bless him, was somebody who was conscripted in 1914 and was uh, demobbed in 1920. So he was a private who rose up to the rank of lieutenant in the First World War because basically everybody died around him and then left the army after being part of the occupying forces in uh, Saarland in 1920 with the grade of colonel, and was also in charge of uh, so-called passive defense in 1940 when the Germans bombarded our town and reduced it to ashes. Basically, it was destroyed 100%. He was a great teacher, and he taught me about Europe, and that was drummed into us as children, so 1914, 1918. And he was a great patriot, believe me, a great patriot. It was say it was a European suicide. Make sure you never do it again. So we never had all these appalling hatred that people had for the Germans. Even though my father was threatened by the Gestapo, my great uncle was killed by the Wehrmacht. My grandfather had to hide uh, Jewish workers who work at, at, at the side of the factory. So we've got pretty rich <laughs> history. But we were always told no hatred, no. And I was taken on a tour of the uh, great battlefields of the First World War. When I was seven, I went to the Osurian Duomo, which at the time you could actually look at this great mass of bones, which you can't anymore, which I think is one of the silliest thing ever. Because believe me, it didn't traumatize me. It made me understand things. And uh, he said, you know, can you tell who's a British? Can you tell who's black? Can you tell who's German or French? You can't. That's why I don't talk about it very often, because I just crack up, and because it is so emotionally so strong, I can't believe that people don't feel the same as I do. Perhaps it's more difficult here, because these islands were not occupied, because despite what people say, and that might shock a few people, Britain suffered very little compared to other nations, including my own. And that, you know, despite the Blitz and Coventry and all the horrible things which happened, and despite all the fighting and D-Day and Dunkirk and all this, in my own department, every single city was destroyed, almost 100%. Every single one. And yet, what came out of that was the spirit of European construction, which, for my generation at least, is such a huge foundation. I think, in a way, some British people live in denial of their European identity. Some of them are not aware of it at all, but I think an awful lot of them are. And that these people, in a way, are not given a chance to embrace it, to express it, without being thought of as member of the elite, which is so condescending. You can be a working-class Mancunian and feel that you're a European citizen. You can be a banker in the city and be the littlest Englander on the planet. That's, again, yet another way in which the so-called debate or discourse is so binary. This layer of um, European identity within British identity is something that these islands is the right place to explore because also of the diversity of the people who compose the forum, the diversity 
as well of the publications which have already been put to the public, and I'm sure there will be many more. Of course, you can talk about a United Kingdom and European identity, even in the United Kingdom that is no longer part of the European Union, which is one of the things that are of great interest to me. Because again, the dimension is not just treaties and commercial deals, it is something which is also intellectual, emotional, historical, cultural, and so forth. There's something that you cannot vote against that. There is no Brexit from European identity. And once you realize that, you think, well, maybe that's the way forward. Especially when you look at the attitude, and for that, when I talk to my daughter and her friends, it's fairly obvious that for them, their idea of nationalism, they can be very patriotic, but none of them is a nationalist. None of them. Again, I'm not talking about people who were born with a silver spoon in their mouth. I'm talking about people from all kinds of backgrounds, people who are really struggling to earn a living in this city, some of whom have had to leave this city because they just can't afford it anymore. There is hope, but for the hope to be fed and to grow into something more than hope, you need, again, to have a conversation going. For example, you know, I'm one of those probably few Remainers that I know who is not in favor of a second referendum. I'm not in favor of it at all which is maybe something I should write for these islands about. I think that one, referendums are divisive exercises, and I do not want to have to go through the same thing ever again. And I know there are arguments about possibly referendum on the terms of exit. That is, which I think is a bit different. But also, I feel very patriotic in terms of defending British parliamentarism. For me, it's all about Parliament having its say, more than having yet another referendum, yet having another campaign, yet having more insults, yet having more lies yet having more projects fear and all this nonsense. But to have the political discourse being resumed as a proper political discourse, you need people from the outside who will inform it and will put on the table arguments which hopefully will be taken on by the media. And it doesn't mean necessarily the traditional media, it can be social media. And then from there, like rain falling on the dried ground, seep undercover and many green shoots not of recovery, but of genuine debate, grow from there. As to what the future holds for us, I've no idea. I'm in limbo, like everybody else. I'm very passionate about the rights which are attached to European citizenship, which I still enjoy as long as the United Kingdom hasn't formally exited the European Union. There are many things that I find extremely disturbing, not just the coarseness of the... Um, of the discourse, but I'll just wait for our friends from the gendarmerie go past. It is quite distressing to see that um, we're always talked of as a kind of a clause in a treaty. Well, we're not a clause, we're human beings. What do we do? And then I have to talk to my, my wife who said, well, maybe we should immigrate to Portugal. I said, hey, come on, steady on. Let's see how it pans out. Because <laughs> I have no idea how it's going to pan out. It's emotionally extremely difficult to go through that. Some friends of mine have left the UK. Some are preparing themselves. I know some British friends who are doing the same thing, who are thinking of exercising their rights as EU citizens while they still can, which is an awful, awful state of affairs. I remember a speech that Boris Johnson gave at the French Embassy on the 14th of July 2016, which was his first public appearance as Foreign Secretary, was in front of an audience of people who were distraught by the result of the referendum, both Brits and French people who had been working together and living side by side for all these years. 
And he made a speech in which he, he stated that, in fact, we were going to be closer to Europe than ever before. When I think of what's happened since then, the discourse has changed rather a lot, hasn't it? So um, an awful lot of work to be done, an awful lot to reflect upon, an awful lot to do, and an awful lot to fight against. <laughs>